On behalf of myself and B, we acknowledge that we are not indigenous. Rather, we are of settler colonial ancestry. Like many other settler people, we have benefited greatly from living on Turtle Island. As a visitor on this land, we have an important responsibility to acknowledge the grounds on which we are privileged to gather in the pursuit of building community. We are recording today in the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy of First Nations, comprised of the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi peoples. We are grateful to work, learn, and live in this area. We're making small talk with cool people. Welcome to our show, It's Small Talk! Oh my goodness. We are back with the Windsor Small Talk podcast. It's been a minute. Thank you, listeners, for giving us time to get married. Thank you for giving us time to celebrate Pride Month. And uh, we actually just got done Disability Pride. So happy Disability Pride to everyone out there who's listening. And that ties into our wonderful episode today. And if you've forgotten already, because it's been a while, I am your co-host, Bronwyn. My pronouns are she, her, they. And I am here with my partner in podcasting, partner in life, partner in Dr. Mario, partner in just about everything. Be Zelda. <laughs> you say Dr. Mario like I'll ever face you. Um, it's more of like I'll support you. I'll cheer you on, you know? Yeah, you do. You okay. do support okay. me. But yeah. I am much better than you. <laughs> I can do every other game except Dr. Mario. That's why I like it. Because uh, but... you're such a good gamer and I'm so terrible at it. <laughs> except that one. Hello, hello, everybody. My name is V Zelda. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm very excited for today's episode because this is a topic I think more people in Windsor need to be having or just like... There's so much around the conversation around disability that we're just not addressing. And I think it's really important to just start talking, start bringing up these conversations with the people that might not otherwise know where to begin. And intersectionality is everywhere. And um, we all are not just one thing. We all are a bunch of things. So this is just another portion of that that we want to explore today. And that leads us to the introductions of our wonderful guests. Now, Evelina, you have to forgive me. Polish names are almost <laughs> impossible to pronounce. They put consonants next to each other that us very British folk have no idea how to pronounce. So if you could help us with with your full introduction, with your full name, that would be that would just save me the embarrassment of trying <laughs> to pronounce it myself. Of course. Um, so my name is Evelina, last name Bachewska. Her pronouns are she, her. Um, yes, and I'm glad to be a part of this this podcast. Thank you, Evelina, for sparing me, because I would have never gotten that right. <laughs> Not and, very many people do. <laughs> and, and my first name being Bronwyn, even though it's very phonetically simple, melts people's brains. And they read it, and they hear it, and they have no idea what I said, and they say a million different words back to me other than Bronwyn. So I do understand what it feels like to have your name mispronounced. So I hate doing it to others. So thank you for that. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Okay, uh, so I am, uh, in terms of, um, like, how I identify, um, I'm a person with a physical disability, and I do a lot of advocacy around um, disability rights, disability pride, and living with a disability. Um and uh, so, and a lot of my professional work is also tied to that. I work for a um, a nonprofit uh, organization that works with people with disabilities, uh, physical disabilities, um, acquired brain injury, um, seniors. Uh, <clears throat> so that's and then um, I've done a lot of well not. <laughs> A lot is, I mean, it's just a matter of perspective, but I've done like academic writing and publishing in youth politics awesome. uh, as well. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And we do have a second guest today. I love it when we when we give you a two for one special on the episode, because the more perspectives we can bring to a conversation, the better. And our second guest today is Danica McPhee. Did I get that right? Yes. Not yes. a hard one. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to save her for last so that I will get it right and feel good about myself going into the rest of the episode. So Danica, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yes, I am also a woman with a physical disability. I um, have my education in disability studies, which is uh, more so questioning what normalcy means, uh, more so like changing to the expectation of difference in 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 structures and policies and things like that um, and in my working life right now I am the operations manager for a mobile health care clinic um, one of my favorite quotes and I, I, I can't tell you that it's completely attributed to Whoopi Goldberg because you know on the internet they can say anyone said anything but I read this quote once that normal is the setting on a washing machine not mm-hmm. a setting for human beings mm-hmm. human beings aren't normal there's no such thing as normal for people that's what machines are that's a setting on a machine so um, I hate it when we it's the most annoying thing in the world to be like well that's not normal what the mm-hmm. f does that mean mm-hmm. right and and um B and I definitely know um, what it feels like to be othered as well. So it's uh, it's wonderful to um, try to dispel the very um, prevalent myth that there's something to be normal about being a certain way when you're a human being. So, because there's what twelve billion people on this planet, there's twelve billion ways to be a person. So, I don't think that we should ever try to use those terms to describe humans. That's just not cool. Um, I mean, that kind of leads into what the first question um, I think is worth asking. In that's, how do you combat um, that kind of conversation, that kind of line of thinking? How do you disrupt disrupt normalcy? I I don't want to interrupt, but uh, yeah, I think a big thing in the disability community is just showing up. Um, When you're there, people have to scramble and get things together to accommodate your presence. And uh, maybe sometimes showing up without telling them that you're coming just to see. Um, Disabled people spend a lot of time calling ahead, finding out whether it's flat, whether it's this, whether it's that. so some, sometimes surprising them is, is a nice little way to surprise and, and keep them on their toes. I don't know. It's oh, a good tactic. Yeah. yeah. Evelina, I was reading on your blog that and, and on your social media, you actually put in your bio that you're a space invader. And I actually really love that term. Not only did it bring me back to my Atari days and, and bring me some nostalgia of the game space invaders, but that also... Um, really makes sense that you know you and to what you said Danica is like just showing up and taking up space can be a really big power move can you speak to that a little bit more so unfortunately I can't take credit for the term I did not uh, coin it Um, I'm not the originator it's by by, um, a disability author whose name escapes me uh, Right now, it we'll was based it, on, uh, there's a, a book that's called Space Invader, um, and that's the title of the book, um, and the author talks about how people who don't meet gender or heteronormative um, ideals or norms are considered space invaders because spaces are typically not designed for everybody in mind they're designed for uh the dominant sort of um ideal of who someone should be and typically that is a white male and she was specifically referring to um women as space invaders in areas of politics okay so uh, but i use the term in sort of my disability advocacy. Um, so <clears throat> having said that, a lot of my tactic in combating normalcy uh, in disability pride um, uh, 
necessitates um, undoing ableism because the world is designed only for able-bodied people in mind. And I'm using the term ableism very broadly. So everybody is affected by ableism if they're not, if they don't identify as a white, able-bodied male who is fit, uh, physically active, um, able to keep employment, uh, and is considered successful, quote-unquote, in every aspect or most aspects of their lives. So if we frame ableism that way, it's not only disabled people that are affected by ableism, it's everybody who doesn't fit that blueprint. I actually, to be honest with you, it took a long time for me to even hear the term ableism. Like I was a young adult before I had even encountered the term because I was just so sheltered by my own privilege that it took me a while to hear that term and 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 um, really understand that it included way more people than I thought into the term itself. You know, I didn't hear that term until I was about 23 as well. I think it's the difference between a congenital and an acquired disability. As, yeah. uh, you come into it with a lot of ignorance when you have it acquired later in life. Absolutely. We just came out of uh, Pride Month for the queer community. We just came out of Pride Month for the disability community. So each of you, I'd like you to answer, what are you pr- most proud of? I like that question. Oh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I don't like that question. Well, I'll, I'll go first if you want. Yes. Well, you can think while, while, I, while I blabber on. Um, and B, you're going to make you answer this too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Get ready. <laughs> you got to think. <laughs> well, I am most proud of my community's resilience. Um, I'm proud that uh, despite, you know, setback after setback after setback, people pretending I don't exist, people pretending that um, I'm mentally uh, ill, people thinking that... Um, my way of life is a sin and all the whatever it is i'm proud that um i am still a space invader i'm proud that we resiliently show up and we are ourselves and and like i said there's 12 billion ways to be a human being so we each take our unique self and we show up in public and we are as loud and as proud as we can be and so that's what makes me proud to be uh, myself and part of my community and so, yeah. And then I think, too, when we talk about pride, we, we think about it as being an event. We think about it being as a, as a finite amount of time from this day to that day. And we think about it maybe in because, you know, queer pride is a, is a protest as well as being a celebration. So we kind of think of it in political terms. But sometimes it's just what are you actually proud of when you are yourself and when you are authentic and when you get to live your life and take up space? So that's what I'm proud of. Resilience. What about you, B? Was summarized as this resilience. I like it. it. (laughs) Hey, hey, I'm a teacher. We have to make small things big just so kids can understand. (laughs) It's consumable. So I'm used to making a tiny little concept a whole lesson, also to fill time when I don't know what else to teach. No, that was excellent. Um, And with that kind of line of thinking, it made me kind of consider. um, I guess I'm proud for the knowledge and the information and the people in power that have. I guess I don't even know how to make the, how to how to kind of say those sentences, but the fact that like gay marriage is allowed in Canada and yeah, has been for oh <laughs> and it has been for so long. Like I think I'm really proud of that fact, um, and I wish we can do more as far as our, our politics go. And I think it's something that yeah, I, I guess I'm proud of every day, but I don't like actively think about. Yeah, I'm proud of not going backwards yet. Mm-hmm. Speaking of all that progress, there's some things that are happening below us that are uh, going backwards, but we're not going to go down that topic. But ladies, now that you've had a chance to think about it, <laughs> Evelina, Danica, I'll let you guys fight over who goes first, but know. what are you guys proud of? I don't know. how. I didn't know I'd be this stumped, so you can go. It's a hard question. It's <laughs> yeah. like too broad, but like it's oh, still within a narrow That's what we do avenue. in the Windsor Small Talk. We come at you with hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so the, the term 
resilience comes to mind. The um, but I guess I'm most proud of of community and the importance of community within the disability community, and we saw that during COVID, um, which we sort of, um, I mean, when we think about like uh, cultural representations of disabled people or even like futuristic sci-fi <laughs> movies um, what we consider success is no disability no ailments in the future right so disabled people are often erased from um, any sort of cultural representations of progress and so we saw during COVID, which is sort of like an apocalyptic social experiment. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of the ways in which able-bodied people now had to um, confront their vulnerability. Um, and then it also sort of amplified the ways in which disabled people are ignored by big structure capital P policies yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> and it it was it was on the forefront um and disabled people had to rely on their own communities to keep each other alive I don't want to sound sort of morbid or or use hyperbolic language but it, sure but it is but it is that's yeah. real talk it's uh, real talk yeah, that's, that's all true. it is yeah um and so I'm proud of the fact that disabled people um, are resilient, but they have very strategic, tactical ways of creating communities to survive. And in that case, we're um, positioning ourselves as being very practical caregivers and not only those in need of care. And that's another way of restructuring the identity of what we consider disability. So we often do care for each other um, and not only need care, but are caretakers ourselves. Um, and sort of on a personal note, um, I didn't really identify or openly identify um, as disabled which is ironic because you could tell just by visually um, looking at me. Um, but it's not something that I was really encouraged to be proud of until um, I was in my mid-20s. And that's where a lot of, like, unlearning <laughs> happened. Um, what was, like, the, what was the moment? What was the conversation where that shift kind of happened? <laughs> it was a lot of anger. Fair enough. <laughs> and, and, and exhaustion, really, to keep up the um, the sort of facade that I can fit into the able-bodied um, uh, structures of normalcy. So a lot of the time that means, like, reaching certain life milestones. Um, and in a lot of ways, I haven't reached them or I haven't reached them at the same rate that you know the able-bodied person is expected to and it's it just it uh, I found it very politically useful to to identify um as as a disabled person openly and I felt that once I did I no longer had to like play on um, other aspects of my life so I used to like really play up the femininity in my appearance and I used to like wear makeup and <laughs> really sort of play into certain other stereotypes to avoid the identity of, of identifying as disabled mm -hmm. doing your very best to kind of fit into like you're like I can do that box I think so yes. I'll try that was very much my own experience and like you know in different ways where I picked out a couple of the tools that I'm like femininity I can give that a try you know that's like what we consider normal I'll give that a shot and see how it goes so I can fit in and it's just awful you know if it's not the way you feel it's just not a good time 
and I, and I and I get what you say when you mean it's like it's very um, useful politically as well because um, when I was uh, exploring my own identity and how I want you know what box did I want to check and um, being assigned female at birth and dealing with gender norms my whole entire life, I when I realized that I was gender nonconforming, I didn't want to have the trans necessary label because identifying as a woman politically made so much sense to me because I spent most of my adult life being um, a female presenting feminist. So I realized that that my womanhood, that identity was very effective politically and very useful politically. Um, not that my a trans identity would wouldn't be, but I understand. But it what also you mean. allows yeah. you access within certain systems. Right? Absolutely right. Yeah. It's it's part of the game that you have yes. to play when you when you're othered, right? Like it's part of the game. So I found it very useful to to keep that as part of my identity. And so I always say, like politically, yes, I'm a woman. But if you want to think about socially, I'm gender nonconforming. Don't really. That's why she they right for me because you know it's kind of a code switching kind of situation where in some situations, yeah, I'm woman, hear me roar. And then other situations, I'm, you know, whatever shirt I decide to put on or if I decide to wear a baseball cap or whatever, it just kind of all blends together. But so I, I really understand that, that point for sure. So Danica, <laughs> you've been hiding over there. You, we've given you lots of time to think about this question. What are you proud of? And I'm proud of Evelina. And <laughs> Snaps for that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm proud of, Having a community behind me that includes Evelina, it might include you too after today. But I am I am proud of that community. I I, I don't know. I think I I think I, I don't know. I have a long way to go in terms of um, similar tendencies that I was talking about in her young life, like um, conforming to like the able-bodied norms and things like that. And I think that's been a real struggle lately in like starting a new job and. A new team. Ev used to be on my team. We used to work together. We were able to like debrief whenever we needed to. Right. And then when you're in a whole different place with all these people who have such different needs, then it's been challenging. So yeah, I don't know. I'm going through a whole process of getting a bigger chair. I'm proud of myself for getting a bigger chair. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that I can be more comfortable rather than just trying to be small. I'm proud of. Good. That's excellent. That is, though. Take up space. It's important that we do that. And I really, I forgot to mention, which I really shouldn't have, because it was on the forefront of my thinking, and even Danica and I being here together, uh, that's one of the things that, like, I truly, truly miss because Danica was such a huge part of the community <laughs> that um, we, or at least that we built or that I built at work and a lot of the ways in which we sort of coped with the nonstop sort of disability, um, lack of support, uh, lack of housing, lack of everything and how... Uh, disability is just an extra layer that sort of <clears throat> adds further barriers. Um, it was just, it, and so now um, I work in the office. So we are an organization, like I said, that works with uh, disabled um, people, but I am the only openly um, identifying disabled person in, um, in the office. And a lot of what should be obvious to people that work within the organization is not Mm -hmm. because they don't have a lived experience. And I no longer have um, someone to just, I mean, we used to like share a wall in the wall. Talk through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> like like with your words or were you like knocking in code against the wall? Or something? We could literally hear each other. <laughs> well, I'm happy to I'm happy to reunite you guys, at uh-huh. least in this I'm sure maybe socially you see each other more often, but I'm happy to get you guys both in the same space because that's awesome. I know what that's like too, because um I'm I'm in education, I'm a secondary school teacher and um 
it's always good to have that one ally on staff that knows exactly what you're experiencing and you can like you said debrief and and kind of you know be able to just like uh <laughs> with that person is like so cathartic and so like soothing yes yeah. and so i wanted to actually use education kind of as a segue into my next point um since i i've i've spent almost 20 years in um in our greater Essex county district school board here in windsor and i know that um i'm curious to see if your guys' experiences in school led to the way you kind of chose to identify yourself because there's always this debate in schools whether to assimilate differently abled people or neurodiverse people into regular normal classrooms or if there you should have a separate um separate classes separate teachers separate you know and and there's always i i've I personally work in alt ed and my school is not accessible. So we don't have a lot of people with physical disabilities in my school per se. So I don't have a lot of experience personally, but I know a lot of people with um, who have kids in the system or have taught in different classrooms. Um, how did that, what was your experience like for you guys? Did, did that lend to your identity because you were assimilated into classes or were you segregated? How, 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 am I making sense? Is that, is that it makes of? perfect sense. Okay. I'd like to defer to Eve again because she went through her K to 12 in a, in, and I didn't, I had to my disability at 23. <clears throat> so, um, I, um, throughout, I guess, um, from age four till, uh, I would say, seven or eight, um, I attended schooling at the um, Children's Rehab Center, what is now known as the John McGivney Children's Center. Um, and then it was sort of thought that uh, she's way too smart yeah but that but but, you know that's also sort of ableist Mm -hmm. thing it's like the dual tone of it it's like okay thank you but also this space is kind of set up for your needs it's just maybe not as far as education right so then i went like half day to the children's center and then a half day to regular schooling at grade two and then full time starting grade three and then um when I graduated grade school and went into high school I was placed in I graduated high school in 07 so the education system might have advanced since I've been in there but during my time there were three streams so there was the academic the um applied and then the third stream which i don't recall remedial the... i don't know well, it, it, it's it's like a certificate stream so yes. uh, okay. if you're not if you know you're not going to need a diploma you go through like a certificate uh track that, like... where you're you're getting credits and you're still doing things but it's not going to an official ontario secondary school diploma it's a certificate track hmm. and that's uh there's lots of different reasons why you could be going that down that track so most people or most students that go down as i'm sure you know i'm sorry to cut you off we're usually positioned to go into like the trades or some sort of very sort of specified um job like specific skill set um it was very sort of segregational and I was one of the first within my high school that was someone who was disabled but was only um in academic streamed courses which aligned me uh to like uh, towards a university education and then that's what I um strived for because I was gonna be you know disabled but I was gonna be smart and that was gonna make up for my um (laughs) my disability or that used to be my Mm -hmm. your train of thought yes Mm um and so we're the the moment where I realized sort of my political um, alignment in terms of disability pride came in grade 12. (laughs) So I was, um, like I said, in the academic streamed course line and the English 
class that I wanted to be in was in a portable. With stairs. Yes. Mm -hmm. The portable had stairs. And the school administration asked the teacher who was in that portable for several years to move into the school so that I can be in his class. And he, to his credit, uh, said no. That, but not for the reason that you think. He said no, uh, because um, that wouldn't change anything within the system. And his point was, we should make the portable accessible. Yes, Instead of my moving into the school. It's a band-aid. It's not fixing the problem. So, and I still go back. Um, or at least I used to regularly to visit this English teacher all the time. And I remember having a really hard time in graduate school when I saw him one of the last times. And I was thinking, like, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't like it. Was, it was a major crisis of confidence. And he like I, he asked me to turn around and look at the ramp. And he's like, you built that. Oh. That's so that's, nice. that's awesome. Shout out to the to the English teacher. His name is um, Dave Koloff, Mr. Dave Koloff. Um, I don't know. He's no longer teaching at Holy Names. Okay. Um, but it was Portable Seven that <laughs> sort of awakened my uh, political awareness or my advocacy, somewhat unknowingly. Uh, but that was the first kind of. Um, that was the first thing to sort of... Yeah. Uh, I want to say, like, radicalize you, but that shouldn't have to be the word. <laughs> well, that, like, that's, a, that's a really important age, though, developmentally. Like, like when you are getting, reaching, like, 17, 18 years old, that's when the world starts to open up for most people, right? Like, some people are a little narrow-minded for a lot longer, but that's kind of when you start to, like oh, the world isn't everything five feet in front of me, right? The world is a bigger place. So that doesn't surprise me that that was the age for you because that's kind of like the point where you can either choose to be, continue to be like that egocentric teenager or you can kind of flip that switch and then you start seeing the world as a really big, complicated place, right? And then you start figuring out where do I belong in this place and how am I going to leave my mark? And that's really awesome that a ramp in Portable 7 is like the birth of... Evelina the Advocate. I love it. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great like first chapter for your book when you decide to write it. Um, this kind of leads off into my next question about role models. Um, I do kind of want to uh, address really quickly. I don't know who had said it, but like uh, how when you're growing up, you can't necessarily use the milestones that, say, able-bodied people would have as far as their life is concerned. So what kind of role models do you look at? How do you, I don't know, like section the parts of your life so you know that things are advancing? Like I don't have very good milestones in my life. Uh, I got married. That's a milestone. I, you know, like mine are are not really tangible because that's never been something useful for me, but it's a normal, it's one of those things that we're always supposed to have like that life dream, like your life has to be planned out. But when you don't do that, are there any people that you can look to, like any role models in that sense? Representation, all that jazz. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I spend a lot of time in like the deep internet of disability. (laughs) So just like following all the people and staying in all the comment sections and things like that. And I don't know, it's just those those are the people that that you identify with and that you can see yourself in and that. But um, yeah, there's a lot of like milestones that you, it's just known that you're kind of not supposed to reach them as a disabled person, you know, like if you're on social assistance, right? I'm not on social assistance anymore, but at the time of my injury, I thought, well, I'm never going to be off of social assistance. And that essentially means that you can't, unless you're, unless you're marrying somebody who has great benefits that can extend to you, you can't marry someone else. You lose your funding. You lose, I guess your benefits could stay dependent on what they're getting, but that's like the nitty gritty of it. The point is that they don't want you getting married. They don't want you cohabitating. They don't want you doing all these things. And even, um, just 
in in our previous role at work, right, we were doing a lot of housing for people with disabilities. Even those programs aren't set up for accessible housing. They're like, find a unit, but find a unit that costs a thousand or less. Well, you can only find a unit that's a thousand or less if it's a third floor walk up. Mm -hmm. But if you put an elevator in the building, it's out of bounds and they're just, they can't access subsidy programs. So you're staying at home or you need like comprehensive care. So you stay at home. There's none of that is available to you. And even, you know, um, sort of advancing from that, if you, if someone who's disabled and doesn't have, let's say, a supportive family or not necessarily supportive family, but if the family doesn't live in an accessible home, people with disabilities that um, require what we call like high level care or uh, you know is is high in acuity then they're mostly put in long-term care homes which that was the hardest part of my job because I always think I'm like two steps away from being like in my 30s I have a job I'm um educated but as a 34 year old I'm like two two you know, notches away from living in in a long term care home, which that is a really sort of <laughs> sobering uh, reality. Um, yeah, and that that is one of the the most sort of difficult parts of of living or working what you live. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's very valid though. Thank you for sharing. Who do you look up to? Um, honestly, and I mean this in the most genuine way, um, and part of why I value our relationship is you mentioned yourself that you acquired your disability later on in life, but you, um, became very aware of, um, like critical disability and what that means yeah. and someone who has learned to sort of rebuild their life and also advocate for and openly identify in such a short time span and like uh, in you know from acquiring the disability to acquiring that sort of advocacy that's um, something that you should be very proud of Thank you. I also look to you for a ton of guidance because you are more seasoned and because you are way more assertive than me. I think that like I come across as a little louder and a little bit like, but the first person to like actually fight for rights is F. Like it's always F and it's and I'm there behind her like <laughs> cheering her on. Cheering but, her on yeah. but I'm never the, yeah, I'm, I'm here for you. <laughs> and a lot of like I follow... Uh, like Danica said, like deep within the realms of the web, the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I yeah. think that's what, you know, those of us who are othered have to do. We have to really search for that re- representation because we don't see ourselves. It, it's better than it ever has been, but there's still so much work to do with representation just in mainstream media and, and, and everywhere. And um, it's, it's so simple. It's such a simple concept that if you see yourself, you can be yourself and people just don't get it. They don't get it. That representation matters that you need to, especially as a young person, you need to see people like you being successful. You have to see it or you're, you're not like you, you're told as a kid all the time, Oh, you can be whatever you want to be. And they say that to everyone, but do they ever show it to you? Not necessarily, depending on how you're marginalized or whatever. They never show you. So you have to be able to see it. You need it modeled for you so that you can actually aspire to it. And I just think it's so important and we have so much work to do. I think the one like recognizable name that I latched onto, and I like latched onto this person immediately after my accident because my friend burnt me or downloaded, I don't know if it's burnt or downloaded, um, the Frida movie. And I watched that from the hospital and she broke her back and stuff and she was stuck in bed and I was stuck in bed at that time. And 
she had like the full body cast and how she got into her art was painting that cast out of boredom. <laughs> and it was just kind of like one of those things where it's like maybe something special will arise out of this. Um, so as cliche it is, as it is, Frida Kahlo is important. Yeah, that's amazing. No, that's excellent. And and sometimes people who are casual, they have casual knowledge about Frida, forget that that was part of her journey as well. Like mm-hmm. they don't realize, they just see the unibrow and the art and they're like, I know Frida, yay. Like, no, it's and, all her pain. They, yeah. That's all her art is. It's her infertility. It's her chronic pain. It's everything. And uh, it's all from that, you know, that tragic accident. I didn't know that. <laughs> See, <right>? I really <laughs> didn't. That's, that's the thing. And so it's just, um, yeah, representation is super valuable. And it's such a simple thing to do. Like you said, like one person at your job identifies as physically disabled. One out of how many people are employed there? Like that right and, there. <laughs> and I'm sure that there are other managers or people in managerial positions that most likely have a disability, but they don't openly... Mm-hmm. Um, identify as such so it might not be um, a physical disability but uh, we people uh, don't often are not comfortable as identifying mm-hmm. because then they feel like they'll need more help or their job uh, will become more precarious mm-hmm. or they're easily replaceable mm-hmm. They step outside of that box right. that has been kind of safely right. keeping them in, yeah. but at the same time hurting them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, excited for all the baby Evelinas out there who are <laughs> um, looking for someone to aspire to be, and I'm glad they have you guys because that's awesome. <laughs> So work-life balance is a theme for the Windsor Small Talk podcast because B and I know that as a volunteer, as an advocate, as someone who has passions that we can't help but act on, (laughs) our lives can get really busy. They can get stressful. They can get hectic. We can burn the candle at both ends. And sometimes we can burn ourselves out. So finding that work-life balance is tricky. It's something that you have to constantly work on and it evolves what what you're doing, like your self-care or whatever you want to do always evolves. But what are some of the things that you guys do to make sure, and maybe you don't, maybe your work-life balance is off the charts and you, you still have a lot of work to do, but what would you like to share with our listeners about your work-life balance? What are some of the tips, tricks, um, things that you do to make sure that you are not burning yourself out? (laughs) yeah um i mean i can spout off all my hobbies like i have hobbies like i will sit and sit and do things um but um just sleeping yeah (laughs) (laughs) sleep is huge sleep hygiene is like the thing that people forget about and yeah it's important well and you know i mean lately not so much but like yeah watching what I eat and what I'm drinking and going to bed on time. And I'm really good at those things. And those keep me like enough, <laughs> enough to get through, I guess. Yeah. That's excellent though. We do need that. Like that has to be your minimum. So yeah. if that's what you're able to maintain and do it in an okay way, that's perfectly good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. It really it's, is. And it's so. enough work to just do that. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So, yeah. Being a human is not easy regardless. It's of so hard. hard. So yeah, basic baseline self-care is, is, massively important because we forget those little simple things can really derail your your journey if you if you don't uh, maintain them ev what about you um so i'm notoriously not um great at (laughs) (laughs) sustaining a work-life balance uh but one of the things that i make a conscious um sort of effort to do um is physiotherapy which is ironic because i used to hate it as a child and again that sort of harks back to like ableism and most people think that physiotherapy uh sort of negates my advocacy because it it well not negates my advocacy but that i'm perpetuating like an ableist sort of view because my goal supposedly would be 
to, you know, um, whatever. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's, thank you for even bringing that up. I remember when we were kind of going over your blog, I had written down um, physio and the cruel proximity, or the the cruel optimistic proximity it has, um, because that was such a fascinating concept, but it's still, like, it's still so now, like, the, physio is still good objectively yes, for your body. Yes, it is. And so I just had to, so um, I went through a lot of physio and a lot of, like, sort of, non-western treatment of um my disability um and clearly um it you know what it had varying effects and um and i think i growing up in the family that i did i got i had this perception that for a physio to be successful are useful, um, or worth my while, um, is if I would miraculously become able-bodied, and that did not happen, and that just made me very angry and Mm -hmm. very depressed in my early sort of teen to adulthood phase, and so I very, I disembodied myself and that I valued my brain and my intellect over the rest of who I am and so and I I really didn't pay for that Mm -hmm. dearly in in adulthood and I think that when I went back into physio um, as an adult in my early 20s I really had to reconceptualize what that meant uh, for me, and that I don't associate it with any sort of ableist thinking, or I try not to. So I had to redefine that relationship and also manage my expectations of what success is um, in that regard. I feel like, I, and I wish I could have like gone back in time and just seen what that conversation with you, you know, little little kid you and talking to whoever your physio person would have been like, because had the expectation been set that this is just to keep you, like it's a maintenance thing, yeah. you know, like sleep is the thing that we do to maintain our existence. Physio mm-hmm. is kind of in that same thread. I, I wish like the expectations could have been different because right. never, I've never considered it to be something that has an end goal but it makes sense that physio is to, it's, what are some of those words? Like it's, you're repairing, you're fixing, yes. and that... Yeah. Curing. Cure, yeah. yeah that but gives it, you the idea yeah. that like there's an end goal, but there doesn't have to be. You can do this forever for yourself because that's important. So in sort of mainstream ableist thinking, if we think about working out, for example, or getting a trainer, we think of like, oh, that's very sort of, that's a sexy kind of yeah. <laughs> way of, of... Stick with me and you'll get these results. Right. Yeah. Or like we, we encourage that. Um, and that's... A, we encourage that as, as a normal, regular fixture of, of someone's life. Yep. And that's sort of where, where we... Uh, there's a certain form of, of almost... Like, we idolize that, but we don't really... uh, Like, if your physio doesn't cure you within childhood, there aren't funding opportunities in adulthood to maintain that physio. Um, So so we don't think of, like, physiotherapy as useful because it's not in sort of the sort of... (laughs) How, like, yeah, okay, no, that does make sense, though, like, how it's traditionally framed. Right. Yeah, I had to, I mean, well, now that I'm listening to you, I'm reconsidering it, but I had to quit physio to to accept myself. And that's what I always told people is, like, I had to quit physio to accept myself. And everybody's, well, you were doing so good. You could walk. But it's, it's like, which one is more important, I guess. Yeah. 
mental health, physical health, but like both, but together and not together? Like, how do you decide how much of each? Yeah, like I was trying to accept myself from this major life change and at the same time, like actively fundraising to go to a physio center called Walk It Off. And like, it just, it felt like I couldn't process what had actually happened while I was still like working toward eliminating what happened that makes sense and so one of the things that i'm really lacking or looking for and maybe it's something that we need to build is okay we to some extent work on the body but we don't necessarily talk about disability grief as a concept yeah right and we we don't have let's say um any sort of therapist that's uh, specialized in sort of transitioning to, you know, leading a disabled life and what that means in all aspects of your life. In, you know, if someone becomes disabled later on in life, that's a whole different, um, it's a whole different way of living. It's a whole different way of being. And we live in a world that doesn't necessarily support that. And we idolize stories of people who are disabled but overcome the odds and start walking again. And I hate those yes. stories. How much does that mess with your brain? So I think much. about that sometimes. And like, that's just, it's only one narrow, specific story being told within so many that are being ignored. And I sometimes mm-hmm. think to myself, like, what are we not seeing? Yeah. Like, where's the in-between? Where are the people that are still working on everything? And that itself is a success for them. Why can't we or that, that if that you're, Or that if you're disabled, you have to be super excellent in some other thing, or you have to run across the country, or yeah. you have to do something. Like, where do we talk about just, like, being an average person <laughs> right. where you're just trying to do the things you want to do and you want to reach that pyramid of self-actualization like do you have to be a superhero or can you just be an average person just living an average life right my my one of the hardest things for me to overcome is that i don't have like a phoenix writing from rising from the ashes um or a good comeback story right my story is just my story and the ways in which i navigate and survive (laughs) <laughs> and you know try and thrive <laughs> yeah i mean that in itself is a success and like that should be celebrated every day is a success and that's like that goes for everyone you know yeah. we don't always it's hard not to want those dramatic mo- like moments that we always see because that's what we're told is the goal but i think you're awesome no matter what you know yeah. <laughs> and um it's just it's just I, I and I really do appreciate that you brought up that grief, though, because especially leading off our last episode where we talked about with Julian's house about these different like whether it's sibling loss and all these different types of loss. And usually we talk about the loss of human beings and but we don't talk about different kinds of loss when it's something like, um, you know, loss of a job or loss of or anything, loss of ability like we don't we don't talk about it as much. And so. I really hope that um, those types of avenues open up for people and that people are, are going to explore what it's like to start support groups and things like that. For And, I, and I'm sure they exist. And if they do, please shout them out so that we can spread they the word. They do, but not locally. Yeah, not locally. Okay. So there's a yeah. big gap here in Windsor-Essex. Yeah. For sure. Uh, It's a little bit fractured. I mean, when I first moved here, my first stop was the library to find out, like, if there was any of that. And I couldn't find any at that time. I was linked to Spinal Cord Injury Ontario. I tried to run a group out of the Beyond Disability offices at the hospital, and barely anyone came. Um, But there's an accessible resource sharing group at the library on Riverside. Mostly for blind folks. I think part of the barrier, too, though, is... Our advocacy by, you know, um, sort of conventional standards is considered quite radical. I mean, not in like burned down (laughs) city radical, but pretty radical. Um, And so what I'm finding within like even the, the clientele that I work with, a lot of them are not comfortable 
with identifying as disabled. What are you talking mm-hmm. about? I'm not disabled. I'm differently abled. Yeah. Yes. I didn't even think about that conversation. Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> And there was a like quote or a theory or something. It's like it's the last real marginalization that still places a lot of like um, it's your lacking. Like I think that we've come to the point where you can't say it's your lacking about race. You can't say it's your lacking about mm-hmm. your orientation. I mean, people do, right. but people genuinely believe that disabled people are lacking and that is why they aren't able to access these resources. People believe that from the best part of their heart. They're like, you're lacking this mm-hmm. function to do this. They're not like, oh, the function is has a barrier. <laughs> yes. The system is not set up successfully. Yeah. 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 Just it's bonkers to me. And but again, it's it's lived experience, it's perspective, it's how you view the world is is completely your own and it's unique so it's really some people just have a really hard time like shifting their perspective and putting themselves in other people like in other people's shoes and having that empathy to be like oh maybe it's because this is the way the world is designed not because those people are lacking like oh yeah. man something i wrote down i think this came from um irene moore davis's article um i think this was with in 2020, she, I think, I... Damn, you found that? Yeah, of course yeah. we did. It was uh, really cool. Podcast <laughs> research. I don't, I don't remember And I Irene, Irene is, a, Irene is a, um, a role model of mine because just the way she advocates for yeah. her, her community and, and her, um, her passion for history and, and teaching others using that history is just like blows my mind so i i genuinely have like a like a google alert for, <laughs> for all these irene because i just want to i want to learn from someone as wonderful as her as much as i can but mm-hmm. um i'd written down um it was kind of a quote about how we value social norms and how ableism is often the last thing that we consider um and even within this conversation it's kind of striking me all of these parallels within um, the BIPOC community, the queer community, and they're all conversations that we're having, but we're still not having enough of this with, um, like, my brain is now wants to say differently abled. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the with the disabled community, and I just find that very fascinating. It's like we're we're yeah. starting. We see the path now. And we have all of these roads created, but we're not, we're still not moving on it yet. And it's frustrating. It's like, I can see, I can see that there's, there's a potential of change, but it's still, I feel like everything that we've talked about still feels like it's very, very low on the list of priorities for humans. And how do we change that? Who do, who do we yell at? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I think it honestly comes in the sort of small grassroots micro um, settings Um, and the ways in which the disability community shows up for each other, right? So, um, and just based on my life trajectory as a child up until adulthood, most of my friends... uh, were able-bodied in fact (laughs) arguably and somewhat you know I'm not proud of it but like all of my friends up until a certain point were very evil evil able-bodied and and that was just sort of I didn't have that sort of exposure to that community and it was my way of keeping sort of myself relevant by not identifying as disabled um and uh, so that was sort of the way in which I navigated that space and now I find that I'm sort of I yearn for those sorts of connections and looking up people and how they're using like everyday items in different ways to do things or you know how what you do when you run out of battery in the middle of the street and stop traffic which you know has happened to me before. <laughs> yeah, it's 
literally it's self-inflicted for me because like there is a certain level of maintenance with your mobility aids yeah. too and that just like is another layer of responsibility that I don't want to deal with and right so I get it's all these because if it's not covered or not fully covered if you're working exactly so we delay because we don't have enough mm-hmm. benefits yeah. So you think, oh, you know, we'll deal with this. It's like rationing your meds yes. if you're not covered in that oh, prescription. Yeah. is yeah. expensive, Same right? Same energy, and that's not okay no matter what. Yeah. But like, what do you do sometimes? I ration my medical supplies. I mean, we both have pretty good jobs. I mean, this one's okay. My last benefits plan couldn't get me through the month for urinating. Like, I Ugh. couldn't afford to pee for the month. Yeah, no. Uh, but anyway, it's the casters come off because all my hair gets stuck in them. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to cut out the hair, like, probably once a month, and then it ends up seeing using the screw oh and then gosh. it just comes off okay so like i see the self-inflicted but it's still like it's maintenance for like a body is enough like again sleeping the bare minimum that i can manage and then you have to add something else yeah. like and we have to wash our hair no no you gotta pick so i get it i really do yeah oh my goodness <laughs> so you know you can you can uh you can scold me if this is a dumb question, but I don't think, dumb, as a teacher, I don't think dumb questions exist. But do you think it would be a part of something that, you know, I had to be in a chair because a really unfortunate thing happened to me. It was a temporary experience, but it was an eye-opening one. Do you think that more people need to have these this kind of lived experience to understand? Or should they just, like, flip a switch and be able to understand some of the barriers and underst- understand the things that... People who are disabled have to... I want to say just really quickly that that's a valid question. Um, but my like my switch personally was I had a friend online um, who was a disability advocate. And it was conversations with her about the work that she does, about all the places that I could read. That was kind of my... Yeah, like you said, like the switch and like it was, I guess it was that empathy because until then I hadn't had a lot of proximity to folks like her. So is it exposure? Is it is it lived experience? What do you think is going to help the able-bodied population understand and advocate and get things changed? I think that I think that we need to learn to confront our vulnerability and the fact that we're all interdependent on each other, no matter who you are. We need community. We need help. We can't survive. Uh, we're biologically and it's a fact that we're not biologically wired to survive on our own in fact we're wired you know we're first and foremost social Mm -hmm. um and everybody needs community everybody needs help we're all interdependent further from that though we are all going to experience disability at some point in our lives mm-hmm. we are all going to be disabled um i just you know happen to do it sooner yeah <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> Thank you both so much for talking with us. This has been an excellent conversation. Um, is there anywhere that we can find you online that we can support you? Um, do you have a website? Uh, why don't you go first? Um, so I'm on like all the socials. Mostly I use Facebook and Instagram. I don't know if you want me to like say the... I don't even remember my... like. <laughs> yeah. well, we can put it put it in the show notes like in the captions right. when we when we when we release the episode so. um and again so my blog which i want to restart again and i'm making i'm going to make a conscious effort to to do that and i have some ideas for um some future uh, entries so what is the name of the blog again so the name of the blog is feminist limbs l-i-m-n-s you made me google that word i had never yeah, uh, seen that too. word used um, and I, I love vocabulary. Vocabulary is like, just a, like I love Scrabble and I love the games that kind of really stimulate vo- your vocabulary. Yeah. And I love words that I don't know. And I had never heard limbs. Like the homonym, when you hear it, you're like, oh, you think L-I-M-B-S, which is probably some of the clever yeah. use of the word. Yeah. And so when I Googled it, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, time. Yeah, shut Thank up. Thank you. E. Okay, we are on time limit. <laughs> um, 
Thank you so much, Ev. Uh, Danica, where can we find you? Where can we support you? Um, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not, no, I don't have any social presence okay. online. So um, let me know if there's anything interesting I can support. Yeah, I mean, are there any, uh, like any, oh, I want to say advocacy, any uh, groups that you'd like to direct us to? Are there any blogs like or websites? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I have a hundred, dozen, thousand. I have a shout out for a really smart influencer or two. Okay. Um, crutches and Spice very 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 insightful uh i have more but they're mostly a little bit more airy she's very serious <laughs> she'll give, she'll she'll give, give me the education excellent yeah. thank you um and i have been one of the co-hosts b zelda you can find me on all socials as at b zelda uh yeah Bronwyn, what about you well they find you first and then they see all your cute posts about me and then they're like who's that bozo and then they find me i'm just out there doing my thing you don't want my socials it's all cat pictures and what i had for breakfast why don't you promote the podcast oh yeah the podcast at windsor small talk on instagram facebook um the x place that's not a bird anymore um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Windsor Small Talk. And this has been a wonderful conversation. We are talking about fascinating people in Windsor doing fascinating things. So thank you guys so much for being a part of this episode. And stay tuned for the next one, listeners. We're going to come at you with some cool stuff. Stay tuned. We're making small talk with cool people. Welcome to our show, It's Small Talk. Hey y'all, B Zelda here because I know you have not heard enough of my voice, but I'm just popping in to remind you all that we have a Patreon page. It is something that is building and budding like the flowers in springtime. Currently, you can get exclusive snippets and previews to episodes before they come out, as well as Bronwyn and I will be trying and playing a handful of two-player and co op tabletop games and I'm a huge fan of indie games because why not get creative with the way that we tell stories and gamify it so everybody else can have as much fun make sure you follow us on patreon we are Windsor Small Talk take care